want to continue in our series in uh, Ephesians. We're going to look again, as you can tell, at the armor of God. Um, Before we jump into it, though, I want to recommend, you know, it's an election year. And one year from yesterday, we will swear in a new president, whoever whoever God has already chosen. But we do have responsibilities as citizens and as Christians to vote. We do not put our hope in the state. Putting your hope in the government to to rescue you or to help you is a foolish endeavor. Um, But God does give us the responsibility. And God gives the state responsibility, right? And so I want to encourage you, as I've been encouraging, I I cannot recommend enough the Just Thinking podcast by Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker. I would encourage you, as the election is coming up, to listen to the doctrine of elections. Not election, elections. What does the Bible say about the power of the state? What does the Bible say about the political issues of the day? What does the Bible say how we should vote as Christians? And in this program, they're not going to, tell, they're not going to mention Republican. They're not going to say Democrat. They're not going to tell you a candidate. This was done actually before the 2020 election. Um, that's how old it is, but it's still relevant. So I just want to encourage you to, as we begin to think about the upcoming election, it's in the news anyways, right? New Hampshire's, is New Hampshire today or tomorrow or whenever it is? Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, to uh, have a biblical worldview on how you vote, because we will be held accountable for how we vote before God. God cares about how we vote. Anyways, with that said, I'd ask you to stand with me as we read from God's Word, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. As I said, again, we're going to be in spiritual warfare today, standing firm in the Lord, part two, standing firm in the Lord, part two. Let's pray and we'll read God's Word. Father, we thank you so much for who you are, that you are everything we just sang about. You are our hope. You are rescue. You are our assurance. You are our all in all. You're everything that we need and so much more. And as we come here today, Lord God, as we pray every morning before we step onto this pulpit, Lord God, to this platform, our prayer each Sunday is simple. We ask that Christ would be glorified and we, his people, would be edified. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 18. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, 
praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. It's the word of the Lord. May add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Well, we have def- we've come up with a definition of spiritual warfare. Let me read it to you again. Spiritual warfare is the Christian's duty of putting to death what is earthly in them by the strength and might of the Lord through the word of Christ dwelling richly in them, through which the Holy Spirit empowers the Christian to believe and understand God's holy word so that it can be obeyed. I think that's a pretty good definition if you ask me. We saw that we battle against the devil's schemes. Remember the schemes is the word methodia, crafty scheming with the intent to deceive. It is not a battle against flesh and blood. As verse 12 says, for we do not wrestle, do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these spiritual forces, as we remember, you go back last week, we saw that it's really the definition for each of them is the same. They have rule over this world. Daniel and uh, here tell us in other places that there's a hierarchy of evil cosmic forces ruling over this world. God has allowed it for his own good purposes. And these spiritual forces, captained by Satan, are actively trying to destroy us. Satan fosters murder, envy, strife, hatred, discord. Anything that is opposite of God, you can be sure that Satan loves it. And I'm not even sure he loves it because I don't think he does not have the capability to love even what he himself is. He is nothing but hatred. There is absolutely nothing redeemable about Satan. But he is seeking to destroy us. He is seeking to destroy you. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober-minded. Have your your mind clear. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Adversary, antidikos. Adversary, hostile enemy. How many of you watched the nature shows? You ever watched Nat Geo Wild? You ever watch uh, those animal shows? How do you see the lion prowling around? Does a lion just walk up, walk up to the antelope? No, he gets down low and he's right, he's sneaky, takes him by surprise. Our adversary is like a roaring lion, and he's seeking someone to devour, to devour, to destroy. The devil's hostility, Satan's hostility, is towards humanity in general. He hates image bearers of God. He hates anything created in the image of God because it reminds him of God himself. Therefore, he loves abortion. He loves murder. He loves all that would destroy humanity. And he is hostile towards humans in general but Christians especially, but Christians especially. Remember, part of the curse was that there would be this enmity between humans and 
the uh, satanic forces, between the devil himself. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Enmity, ibah, enmity, personal hostility. Murderous hate is another definition. Murderous hate. You ever hate somebody to the point that you wish they were dead? That's the kind of hatred he has for you and I. Our adversary wants to destroy us. Again, what did Peter say? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Devour. Katapino. To cause the end of, to destroy. And he is relentless in his pursuit of destroying humans. Remember what Jesus told Simon, that Satan asked Jesus. Just think about that for a second. Satan had already come, tempted Jesus. Jesus defeats him with the word of God. And apparently Satan came to Jesus at another time and asked a request. He asked a request about Peter. We don't know. It's not recorded for us in Scripture. But obviously it happened because Jesus says this to Peter about how the enemy wants to destroy him in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. 31. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Sift you like wheat. Now, I'm not a baker by any, any stretch of the imagination. If it adds an egg and uh, one teaspoon of oil and water, I can mix it and make cookies. That's about all I can do. But I remember my grandmother had a little sifter thing, a little thing you'd squeeze the handle and sift the wheat, right? That's not the kind of sifting that Jesus is talking about. Sifting of that day is where they would, where they would break the husk off the wheat, throw it in the air, and it would blow away, and the wheat would fall, and they would take that chaff, and what would they do with it? They would burn it in the fire. It would be destroyed. The you here, by the way, is plural. Behold, Satan has demanded to have you, meaning Peter and the rest of the disciples, because he was the leader of the disciples, and by extension, that means he desires to have us. Our enemy is out to personally destroy us. This is seen in the word for wrestle, or in some versions, struggle. For we wrestle, pele, to struggle, to fight, hand-to-hand combat. This intensely personal struggle is fought in the minds and the hearts of believers. And it is personal to us. Remember the quote from Thomas Adams last week. Satan, like a fisherman, baits the hook according to the appetite of the fish. And doesn't Scripture teach us that? Remember what James tells us. The Apostle James, who is the brother of Jesus, tells us how this intensely personal battle begins. It begins with our natural appetites. What it says in James 1, beginning in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Brings forth death. The word tempted, periazo, test by soliciting to sin. It says he is tempted, he is Lord. When he is Lord is actually one Greek word. Ex elko, to cause a change of belief so as to correspond more with the beliefs of the person or factor causing the change. That's baiting the hook according to our appetites. We are Lord and we are enticed. Deliazo, to catch by bait, to make sinning look attractive or to make sin taste good or literally translate it, to wave sin in front of a person's nose. And when that desire comes, that desire, epithea, desire, a lust, a craving, kicks in, death will soon follow. Our natural human self desires that which is contrary to God. And we must put to death what is earthly in us as the Scriptures command us to do so. The war is couched in personal terms because it is an internal war of allegiance and obedience. Let's again turn to James to see how this battle is displayed outwardly, but is actually an inward battle. It's displayed outwardly, but it's actually an inward battle, right? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but let's be honest, temptations, arguments, quarrelings, and fight, somebody else has to be in front of me. There is a physical entity there. That's not where the real battle is. The real battle is internal. I, or the person in front of me, or most likely both, are not in line with what God says. And that's the real battle. James says this in James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Again, plural, the church. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Singular. So we see that James goes from the external to the internal. From the external to the internal. He says your passions are at war Within you. Passions. Hedone. You ever hear the word hedonism? Right? It's not a good word, by the way. Right? It's a bad thing to be a hedonist. It's to be bad. It means to give in to every vice and desire that you want with, you know, with no inhibitions whatsoever. It's pleasure, enjoyment, something one is fond of doing. James says these passions are at war within us. War within us. Look how he says in verses 2 and 3. You desire and you do not have. So what do you do? You murder. I don't murder. Let's just stop for a second. How many of you here with us would admit that I'm a murderer? I would. What did Jesus say? When you hate somebody in your heart, you've murdered them in your mind. Now, I get it. It's not physical murder. No, we don't want to be guilty of that. But Jesus said it's just as bad to hate somebody in your heart 
is equivalent to murder. And if God says it's equivalent to murder, guess what it is? It's equivalent to murder because God said it. So we all have murdered. It says you covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Now we've all heard you do not have because you do not ask. That's used by many false teachers to tell you the reason you don't have something from God is because you don't ask for it. And they neglect to tell you the rest of the verse. You don't have it because God says you ask it so you can, you can spend it wrongly on your own passions. But is this not true? We desire and we do not have. And it really ticks us off. We desire. Epithema, the lust, the covet, evil desire. It's the same word in Romans 7, 7, where Paul says, I would not know what it is to covet if I had not been told not to covet. James goes on to say this, about this battle, this war within us, he says, you adulterous people. Oh, thanks for the encouraging word, James. Do you not know that friendship with the world is Enmity with God? Well, no, we already defined the word enmity. Hatred, murderous hatred. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoa. Who's going to win that battle? Every single time, God will. Do you want to set yourself against God? Doesn't Psalm chapter 2 tell us that the kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord? And what does he do? <laughs> Come on, you got to be kidding me. Really? Come on, guys. Come on. Right? Not going not gonna to happen. They're not going to win. No one will win against the Lord. The Bible tells us when Jesus returns that he will speak but one word. And it's over. It's done. The battle is over. The kings of the earth will be gone. The satanic forces will be over with by one. As the hymn says, one little word shall fell him. He says, if you give in to your passions, your desires, you're an adulterous person, you're at enmity with God, and you are God's enemy. But there's good news. Because look what James says. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose, that it is to no purpose, that the Scripture says he yearns jealously, jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Those are such encouraging words. He yearns jealously 
Can't say the word. You know what I mean? Over the spirit he's made to dwell in us. If he's made us his children, he's jealous for us. He desires us. He wants to be near us. He wants to be in fellowship with us. And he doesn't want us to do anything that would break that fellowship. He doesn't want us to go on into into our passions, into the world of darkness, and to become under the reign of Satan when we should be under his reign when we should be in relationship with Him, when we should be looking to Him and no one else. No wonder marriage is a picture of the church who would want their spouse to go off with somebody else. No, you want them for yourself. You should want them for yourself and yourself only. Matter of fact, we say that in the marriage covenant. To keep unto yourself Only this woman or this man. God says the same, keep yourself only unto me. Go in your passions and your desires and you leave God. What makes this more amazing is that God does not need you and he doesn't need you. He doesn't need me, but he does desire you. Let that sink in for a minute. The God who said, let there be light. The God who, as I was reading in Job this morning, who placed Orion in the sky. The the God who made the mountains, the God who created the ocean, says, I want to be in a relationship with you. Oh, God wants you. No one else may, but God does. (laughs) Is that not a humbling thought? God wants you. He desires us. He's jealous over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, which is his Holy Spirit. If he's placed, if he's drawn us to himself, if he's adopted us in love, as Paul says earlier in Ephesians, he wants us for himself. He's put his spirit in you, the Holy Spirit, which is also called the Spirit of Christ in Scripture. James goes on to say this, but he gives more grace. He gives you grace. When you you and I do go off on our own passions, when you and I do what we should not do, He still gives us more grace. But He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What does that mean? Well, if you're a proud, arrogant person, God's going to humble you. Well, that's true. Right? Just look at the story of Nebuchadnezzar or any other person who's elevated themselves. And they may seem to get away with it in this world, as, as Mike told us a few weeks ago, right, in Psalm 72, that, hey, they, they rise up to the heavens. Don't worry, God, they're going to stand before God one day, and God's going to set the record straight. But it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The one who says, you know what, it's okay that I've sinned. It's okay that I've done this. It's, okay. you know, it's no big deal. 
No, that's a proud person, and God opposes the proud. But the person who says, I have sinned against you, God. Please forgive me. That person is a humble person, and that person receives the grace of God. He goes on to say this in 7 and 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. The starting point is submission to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a lot of things that we are to do there that are our responsibility that God empowers us to do in spiritual warfare. We are to submit. Hypotasso. To be subject to, to bring under control. I am to submit myself to God's control, to God's authority. And in that, I am to resist antisystemy, to set oneself against, to be in opposition to. It's the same word found in Ephesians 6 where it says to withstand or stand. We are to draw near and knees know to draw near, to come near, to approach. I'm the draw near to God. You and I are to draw near to God. But before we draw near to God, we need to cleanse ourselves. Cleanse, catharizo, make clean, purify, make ceremonially clean. And we are to purify ourselves. Cleanse our hands. Stop doing the evil deeds and purify our hearts. Get our hearts and our minds right before God. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Purify. Hagnizo. Cleanse. Make ritually clean. How is that done? Well, Jesus told us. Jesus prayed for us that God would sanctify us. In John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You can be sure of this. If you have a neglect of God's word, you will have an appetite for sin. You neglect God's word, you will have an appetite for sin. And I don't mean just reading God's word every morning or doing a, you know, a quick daily devotion, a daily bread or something like that. When we talk about the word of God, we mean the contemplation, the meditation of, the study of God's word. How do we draw near to God? Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4.16, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When you're in a battle, when the passions and desires are calling and screaming out, and you're in a battle between knowing what my passions say and what God says, where do you go? Who do you call? You go to God, you draw near to God, and He will what? Give grace and mercy in your time of need. Ian Hamilton, in his commentary, says this, Putting on a suit of armor takes determined effort. Paul is accenting the responsibility believers have in their warfare with the devil and his schemes. God has made a great provision for His people in our spiritual warfare, but we are responsible for taking hold of this great provision. Let's look again at Ephesians. 
verses 13 to 18. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And we know where to do this. Not only are we to put on the armor, Scripture tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh to gratify its desires. What am I supposed to put on? These pieces of armor are I supposed to put on Jesus? Loved ones, Jesus is the armor of God. Jesus is the armor of God. Jesus is truth. He is truth. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Jesus is truth. Our righteousness. So when you have Jesus, you have the belt, and you're going to have the righteousness to protect you. You are not left to yourself and your own devices. Look at what it says, that Jesus is our righteousness. In Isaiah chapter 59, verses 14 to 7, this is, I want you to get this above it. We sang those songs this morning. Did you catch the theme of the songs? Jesus is my sword to fight the enemy. He is my shield to extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. Neglect Jesus, you're on your own. Neglect the Word of God, you neglect Jesus. Do you see how things build? It's like dominoes, you push one over, they're all going. Jesus is our righteousness. Isaiah 59, 14 to 17. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Has truth stumbled in our public squares? I would say it's not stumbled. It's completely gone. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on, he meaning Jesus, put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Jesus is our righteousness. The prophet Jeremiah says this, In his day, in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, The Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah Tadisknanu, 
the Lord our righteousness. Whose righteousness? The Lord's righteousness. Not my righteousness, not your righteousness, because you and I are devoid of righteousness unless God places righteousness upon us. For he who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus is our peace, the sheep, the, you know, here's our famous Nikes now, right? These are what Roman soldiers wore, of course, right? The shoes with the readiness of the gospel of peace. What does peace enable you to do? Peace enables you to stand firm, to sleep in the storm. Didn't Jesus sleep in the storm? He wasn't worried about it. And when the disciples freaked out, he goes, you have, you have no faith. I told you we're going to cross to the other side. If I told you we're going to cross to the other side, guess where we're going? To the other side. They didn't have a peace, but Jesus had a peace. And what I forgot to tell you last week about the, 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 the shoes with peace, they, didn't, they weren't actually shoes that he's talking about. They were like these little iron spikes they would attach to their shoes which would enable them to dig in and stand firm, right? It's like having cleats on, right? If you play sports, you can dig in and you can stand firm. What does the peace of God allow you to do? It allows you to stand firm in a storm. It allows you to have a peace that passes all understanding, and Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our peace. For unto us a child is born, Isaiah 9, 6. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. Jesus tells his disciples, and he tells us also, My peace. John 14, 27. My peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Why? Because I have the peace of Jesus. Jesus is my peace. What did Paul tell the church in Ephesus a few chapters before, chapters before? In Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is our peace and he helps us because he makes Peace with God, we have peace with God, and I can have peace with you. As much as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. Jesus is our peace. Jesus is our faith. He is our faith. He is our shield. What did, what did God say to Abraham, you remember? Don't worry, Abraham. This is, this is Genesis chapter 15, where dreadful darkness has come across Abraham. The pieces were laid out. They were making a covenant. And, and God says, Abraham, I want you to know something. I, I am your shield 
and I am your great reward. I am. Me. I'm your protector, and I'm your rewarder. Me. Jesus is our shield. Jesus is our faith. What's it say in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is our shield of faith. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our helmet of salvation. He's the assurance of our salvation. He puts in our hearts and our minds and clamps it down, as it were, the reality that we are His and He is mine. Jesus is our salvation. What did the angel say to Joseph when he thought about divorcing Mary quietly? He said, don't do it. In Matthew 1.21, she will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Peter, in giving the first sermon of the church age, says this in Acts 4, 11 to 12, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which have become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given amongst men by which you must be saved. As the psalmist says in many places, this is just one of many. Psalm 3.8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings to your people, Selah. The song of heaven will be that salvation belongs to the Lord. Just read Revelation. Jesus is. Jesus is the sword of the Spirit. We probably know that one the best because we know that Jesus is the Word of God. Again, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. One of my favorite scriptures in Revelation is this. Actually, of all of Scripture, Revelation 19, 11 to 13. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Jesus is going to return in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And Jesus is the object of our prayers. We are to pray in the Spirit. Ephesians 6.18 Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. What does Jesus do for us? He lives to make intercession for us. The old hymn says this, the old hymn, Stand Up for Jesus. It says, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in His strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. 
Put on the gospel armor, each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. Put on the armor of God with prayer. Jesus said, if you abide in me, in John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Loved ones, if I can remind you of anything and remind myself of anything, Jesus is all that we need. Jesus is our armor. Jesus is our truth. Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is our, our peace. Jesus is our faith. Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is the Word of God. And prayer, Jesus is the object of our prayer. Do not neglect the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you made the Lord Jesus Christ your armor? Do you have full assurance of your faith today? Do you know for certain that when the roll is called up yonder, that you'll be home? Do you have that certainty today? If not, why not? If not, why not now? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess your sins and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. It's not a hard formula. It's easy to do. And in many ways, it's easy to live out because we're given God's strength to do it. Would you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ even now? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for who you are. That you really are our salvation, our rock, our everything. You are our all in all. You are everything we need. Father, forgive us for so easily putting on the things of this world. Help us, Lord, from this day forward to resolve in the strength of the Lord to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. Amen and amen. Let's stand. Let's close in a song. Thanks be to God for the armor that he has supplied us. Glory to his name. Let us open our hymnals to 493. 493, glory to his name. 493, how many of you know it? Let us sing for his glory. 493. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name, glory to his name, glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied, glory to his name. I am so wondrously saved from sin. Jesus so sweetly abides within. There at the cross where he took me in. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. 
glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Oh, precious fountain that saves from sin. I am so glad that I entered in. There Jesus saves me and keeps me clean. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name. Come to the fountain so rich and sweet. Cast thy poor soul at the Savior's feet. Plunge in today and be made complete. Glory to his name. There to my heart was the blood applied. Glory to his name.